not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou and thou only, first in my life. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. God, how many people have sung those words over the centuries since they were first penned. It's the cry of our heart, Lord, that you would come into our lives in such a way that we would be focused on you and you alone, that you would be our vision, that you would be our treasure, that we would seek you with all that we have and all that we are. It's why we've come into this place, Lord, into this room that we've set aside and consecrated for that purpose, that you and you alone may be honored and glorified here, that for a brief moment during the week we can stop and consider that you are majestic and you are holy and you are mighty and you are powerful and you are sovereign and you are loving and you are kind and you are good and we praise you. And now we ask that you would speak into our hearts and into our lives as we open your word, the word of truth. And we pray, God, that you would speak into our lives, that you would correct us, that you would rebuke us, that you would encourage us, and that you would lead us and guide us according to your good grace. And we pray this in your name. Amen. 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 I release the children through grade four. As we take a look in God's word, we're going to launch from Hebrews chapter 10 today. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and encourage you to turn to that. We're in our summer of encouragement, and um, if you have not yet picked one up, we have a brochure that looks like this, and uh, it's a out at the information stand if you haven't gotten one yet, but it talks about the fact that here at Calvary we're about knowing Christ and making Him known and, and that we're committed to loving God and passionately reaching into the world with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ by encouraging one another to serve Him. And so we've been looking at the summer of encouragement of how can we encourage each other more and more and more to be about the mission of our Father, the missionary God that we serve. And we've looked at many different ways that we could be encouraging each other over the past few weeks, and today we're looking at, at one that's there on the front of your bulletin. And it says this, that as co-members of the family of God, we will encourage each other to gather together regularly to worship And we're going to do that with music that magnifies the name of God and celebrates his greatness, welcoming and employing the talents of the people who've been called to this church family and enjoying together the many styles of music that promote promote praise in all of its fullness. So what we've seen this morning, just praising the unbelievable and incredible character and nature of this God who we serve. And so we gather together for that purpose. I don't know if you've had a chance yet to pick up our, uh, one of our summer reading books. We have two of them that we're looking at. They're available out at the Welcome Center, but this one's called I Could, I Might, I Can, and each one of those are crossed off, and then it says I Will. And so uh, as we take a look at this, and there's a chapter that talks about coming together to worship. I'd like to read a little clip from there for you. It's, this is titled Meet the Archibalds. 
My dad desired um, to vacation in one place every summer when I was young, Panama City, Florida. Every year, we stayed in the same motel, the Bel Air. We stayed for the same length of time, two weeks. We went the same month of the year, July. Dad really knew how to take a vacation. He disconnected from work. He spent hours on the beach. He went deep sea fishing, and he caught and cooked crabs. Often, he would ask another family to join us for one or both weeks of the vacation. I have fond memories of spending time with numerous children from these families. <coughs> one family I remember in particular was the Archibalds. Perhaps I remember them best because they interrupted Dad's routine. You see, on a Saturday night, they told our family they would not be participating in our plans for the next morning. They were going to church. Wait a minute, I thought. We're on vacation. That means vacation from everything, including church. And how could they go to church? They were three hours from our church. I would later learn how committed the Archibalds were to the local church. Even on those occasions, when they were out of town, they found a church to attend. They did so joyously, not out of any sense of obligation. My youthful memory also recalls that they did not try to heap guilt on our family for not joining them. The decision was theirs and theirs alone. We would have been welcome to join them, but they were not going to force the issue. Let me pause for a moment to put this story into perspective. It took place 50 years ago, an entire half of a century. But to this day, I remember the Archibalds. I remember their joyous spirit. I remember their commitment. And I remember that Sunday they attended a church service. The author goes on and say, for many Christians, all other activities have become mandatory while the worship service has become an optional afterthought. Corporate worship is not one option among many. It should be a consistent and persistent practice of all believers, like the people in the churches of the New Testament, like the Archibalds, like you, and like me. I will worship with other believers. Isn't that interesting? You know, I remember, and Tim, maybe you remember as well, when I was growing up here at Calvary and we would go away on vacation, we would visit another church and get a note and bring that note back and it would get written in the attendance books. <laughs> right? And I don't know about you, but I have a New Testament at home. 1971, it's dated for five years of perfect attendance. Okay, so that means all through junior high, fifth and sixth grade, I have perfect attendance in Sunday school. Isn't that something? Can you, that means I didn't miss one week. And I lived to tell about it. <laughs> Something's changed, hasn't it? And I wonder as I've thought about this message and talked about how do we encourage each other to gather together? And I think part of it is that we've 
we've kind of lost track of why we do this. You know, I was 13 like quite a few years ago, and the world was much different. There weren't nearly as many options. There wasn't nearly as much technology. Things were a lot different. And in many ways, church was our social activity. It was what we did because it's like in some ways all there was to do. But today that's different. And I think if we take a a few moments today and just consider why we gather together, it might help us to put a greater priority on it. So let's do that. The big idea for today as we look at it is this, is gathering together allows us to encourage one another to worship God. And I would ask you to put the word after that, only. It allows us to worship God only. And the verse that we're launching from is here in Hebrews 10.25. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So all the more as we see the day approaching, we're encouraging one another. And part of that is coming together and encouraging each other to gather together. We're going to look at three reasons why we should be thinking about gathering together. And hopefully by the end of the service, you'll say, I want to do this more. The first reason, we gather together to worship because it's important to God. We gather together to worship because it's important to God. And there's all sorts of places in Scripture that we see this. But one of the places I'd like us to consider is in the Exodus. And in the Exodus, we get a glimpse of just how important worship is to God. The Exodus, it it tells us about how how God had heard the cry of his people Israel as they had been placed in captivity in Egypt. And they cried out to God. They cried from the pain of the the service that they were in to, to Pharaoh, and they cried to God, and God heard their cry. And he had a meeting with Moses from a burning bush. And in there, we begin to get a glimpse of how important worship is to God. Because from the burning bush, he says this, God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, I love that, who's sovereign God, when I have brought you out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain, right where you're standing. And so Moses goes into Egypt, And he's going to bring the people out because God says it's going to happen. Now why, why is God going in to rescue these people? Yes, they've cried out to him, but there's a reason that God is rescuing him. And just to make sure we get it, there's a couple of verses I'd like us to look at. Then say to him, God said to Moses, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourselves before me? Let my people go so that... Do you think worship is important to God? See, when they were held in captivity, God sent Moses to release them so they could worship God. Now it's important for us to understand and realize in our, in our English Bibles, these, these words get translated, but when we go back to the original words, we find the real depth and truth of these words. Now this particular passage, when, when we see the, the word worship, it's actually a, a word that goes back in the Hebrew, and, and it's, it's havad, right? Is that close? Okay, Arlene helps me. Havad. And, and it's translated worship in our NIV, but the word actually has a deeper meaning that means serve. It means to serve. And so, catch the picture here. Think about this. Moses is going to Pharaoh, and he's saying to them, to Pharaoh, you know those people who are serving you because you think you're God? You need to release them so they can come and serve the one true God. And Pharaoh's like, you don't get it. I'm God. And these people are serving me. They're worshiping me. They're mine. They're my possession, and I'm not letting them go. And he would not humble himself before God. So as we think about that and we look at that, we see that worship is serving. Let my people go so that they may worship me. They may serve me. Now that word, Havad, the first time we find it in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, would you look at verse 15 with me? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And it's found there as, as God takes man, puts him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and care, take care of it. Havad, serve, work. Our work becomes our worship in many ways as, as we serve God in serving what we do. So we begin to see that God, that God has seen worship as being so important. There's another word for, for worship that we find in the Old Testament, shakah, and, and, and that means this idea of bowing down before, kneeling before, falling before, giving adoration to, and, and recognizing the immense greatness of God. And, and so we have these two words that are interpreted for us as, as worship in our copies. So it's this idea that worship is for us to come and, and be before him 
in adoration and in service. But there's one more thing to look at. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Now this is when Jesus has been baptized and he heads into the, into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan comes to him and, and he says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is written in Deuteronomy, worship the God and serve and worship God and serve him only. You see, Satan has said, worship me. Now, in, in the Greek, in the, the original language, this is proskuneho. This is this, this idea, again, of the adoration. And Satan is saying, adore me. Adore me. And Jesus is saying, not likely. Saying, the word of God says that you adore the Lord only. Proskuneho. And serve him. Now, in the Greek, that word is latruo, latruo, and that is that same idea of abad. It's work. It's serving. And so he's saying, you will adore God only and serve him. Now, it's interesting because in the original language in the Old Testament, which, which Jesus is quoting from here, in the Hebrew, that word is a different word. It's yareh. And that means fear. So when this original command is given by, by God, it's you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. So are you keeping up? We've got three words for worship. We've got fear, we've got serve, and we've got adore. And all of these become part of our worship. Now you begin to think about that. And you think, how do you come to the worship service. When you, when you hop out of your car after you've had the prayer time with your family on the way here, maybe not every week, right? And you're coming in. I love the Psalms of Ascent. I, I, I love to park away on Sunday morning and, and quote some of the Psalms of Ascent as I walk up to the church. As, as you come, are you, are you preparing to come into a worship service where you are ready to, to be in the fear of God, to adore him and to serve him? Is that what's, what's going on in our mind? See, for the Archibalds, I don't know them, but I think part of the reason they had such joy is because they understood that that's what worship was that we gathered together to worship God. And see, understand that for God, this is, this is important for us to do this. One of the verses that we've been looking at this summer, in Revelation 22, verse 3, and his servants will serve him. 
It's this beautiful idea that we will spend forever in beautiful, perfect heaven, in extreme joy, in the presence of God, as his servants. The word there is doulos. It means bondservant, actually slave. We'll be a slave to God who worship him, who serve him. That word that's there, we will serve him. And so we will spend forever worshiping God by serving him in fear of him and coming together allows that, us to do that here on earth. It's a powerful thing that we have, this gathering together. Do I see that gathering together to worship is important to God? And if it's important to God, how does it change the way that I view it? As I begin to think about Sunday morning and Saturday night, I'm, I'm determining whether or not I should come to church the next morning, or, or Saturday morning, I'm determining whether or not to come to church Saturday night. How does it change when I, when I stop to think about the fact that this is important to God? Because it's here when we come together that we, we stop and consider the fact that God is the one who we worship. And all during the week, you get distracted from that, don't, don't you? But here we come together. Gathering together allows us to encourage one another to worship God only. The second thing we see is that we gather together to worship as the family of God. That's the other reason this becomes so important, just one more reason. Yes, worship is important to God, but you'll remember when he was talking to Pharaoh through Moses, he said, let my people go so that they could come and worship me. See, God is about family. And the, the Israelites understood this differently than we do because for them, they understood the corporate nature of the way that God views the world. God doesn't necessarily view us each individually as much as he views us, of us together. And so he longs for us to bring ourselves into the same place to worship him together. We gather together as a family of God. Now that's found in, in, in verse 19 as we lead up to 25. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters is the implication there, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And so he's encouraging these, these Hebrews as, as the author writes to them that you are brothers and sisters. And this is important and it's, it's so critical for us to understand because we live in a day and age where things are, are so individual See, it's possible that many of you are here today and it's possible that some of you are not part of the family of God. Keith Green used to say that just because you walk into a McDonald's, it doesn't make you a hamburger. Just because you come into the church building, it doesn't mean that you're part of the church. See, to be part of the church, you've got to be part of the family of God. And to be part of the family of God is, is to be accepted by him. So many times we talk about, have you accepted Jesus? Well, that's great, but has he accepted you? That's a little bit bigger. How does that happen? It happens as we come to a point in our lives where we understand and know 
that the sin in our lives has locked us into darkness, absolute separation from God. We've been created by God to be in a relationship with him, but our sin severs that relationship and puts us away from him and causes us to live in the darkness of our guilt and our shame and our regrets. And apart from Jesus, there's no hope out of that. But because of Jesus, God took on flesh and came and made his dwelling among us. And, and he came and he lived a perfect life and he walked among us and he, he died on the cross, a horrible and horrendous death because our sin has earned the wrath of God and his wrath was poured out on his own son on the cross as he died and cried, Father, forgive them, and said it is finished and took his last breath. He was buried, and he rose again, giving victory over death for all who believe. And he ascended to the Father where he is right now, at this moment, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And if you've come to a place in your life where you've realized that your sin has separated you from Almighty God who created you to be in relationship with Him and that you have by that choice forever secured hell for yourself, if you've come to a place where you've said, God, I, I ask that you'd forgive me. I repent, I turn, I ask that you would forgive me. I ask that you would, you would accept me. I give you my life. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, at that point in time, you're brought into a relationship with Christ, with God, where he sees you just as if you had never sinned. Thank you. And then scripture says, as many as receive him to them, he gave the power to be called the children of God. You are a child of God, and now I'm your brother. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> because you're part of the family of God. And you see, you cannot be in a relationship with God without being in a relationship with the family of God. It's not possible. And we're, we're told that we need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's absolutely true. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in order to find yourself rightly restored to God the Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you, and heaven secured for you forever. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in order for that to be possible, but it is not a private relationship. It brings you into a family and all the mess that goes with it. And we gather together as family because we get it. We get it. You see, until that moment in time when you turn, when you repent because of the kindness of God, until that moment in time, it is impossible for you to worship God because you don't know him but that moment as God reaches into your life and rescues you and turns you, you now can worship him and him alone. And see, that's brought into your life by him. And, and, and we get that. The world doesn't. The world looks at us and goes, what's going on with them? And all during the week, they say, what's going on with you? Don't worship God. 
Worship this instead. You see, worship of God is not true worship if it's not selfless. Say that again. Worship of God is not true worship unless it's selfless. See, we, we take ourselves and we put it aside and we say, God, you are the one that I worship. You are the one that I adore. You are the one that I praise. Now, the context of the Scripture understands this much differently. The, the, the people who Scripture was written to would have understood this idea of family and corporate nature way more than we do. We, we live in an individualistic society where, where the needs of the individual outweigh the needs of the group. You don't find that in Scripture. In Scripture, the needs of the group outweigh the needs of the individual. And that's what happens in family, isn't it? When family's working well, the needs of the family outweigh the needs of the individual. And so you take the second portion in the dessert because your mom would feel bad if you didn't. Well, maybe that's not an exact analogy, but. But the context of Scripture, the sibling relationship was the most important relationship. Because your siblings, you have all your life. And so that sibling relationship, you were blood in a different way. And it was important. And so that's why when we begin to see verses that say brothers and sisters, we begin to see what God has designed for the church to be. He has designed for us to be that close with each other, intimate with each other. I greet a lot of you as you come in, and some of you come in alone, and some of you come in with families, and some of you come in with friends, but when you come in here, you're coming into family. And against the setting of of Scripture, Many times, in order for someone to enter into the family of God, it meant that they needed to put their family aside, or their family would put them aside. And so in order to enter into the family of God, and we've heard the testimonies and the stories of people who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ and have been disowned by their families. See, they've traded the earthly family for the heavenly family. And that's God's design. You remember when Jesus was, was talking and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he said, who's my mother and brothers? It's you. It's you who are here. You are brothers and sisters. And we gather together in a weekly family reunion. Together. To encourage, to love. We notice when each other is it needs a touch. We notice when people are sitting alone and we sit next to them. We, we notice those things. We come for the encouragement. I love it when I, when I do the fellowship time and I say, say hello to somebody. And man, I love watching it. And all of a sudden, there's this huge buzz in the room and, and some of you are hugging and others have your personal space. And you know, and it's just, you know, and it's this wonderful moment in time when the family comes together. As I stand up and watch, I, I often wonder to myself, how many times did someone just get greeted who spends the rest of their week alone, longing for someone to touch them like that, longing for someone to say, I'm really glad you're here, 
longing for someone to be excited and say, it's good to see you. Some of us get that a lot, but some of us don't get that very often. And we gather together for that purpose. We gather together to greet each other like that. I had coffee with someone this week who said that they were in the, the Walmart. Because you see, it, it doesn't just happen here, but all of a sudden, as you get to know people here, you begin to see people that you've seen here in other places, and here's what happens. He said he was in the Walmart, and, and he came around the corner, and there was somebody from church. And they were both in a place where they just were, everything was coming against them, and they, they just stopped right in the middle of the, uh, of the aisle at Walmart and started praying over each other. Right out loud, you know? And everybody's walking by and going, what's going on here? It's like, it's okay, it's just family. It's just what we do in the family. Because, you see, as brothers and sisters, the number one thing we want is our father to be involved. We want to bring our father into our conversation. We want to bring our father. We want to hallow his name. We want to magnify him. We want to raise him up. And we don't want to change his mind, but we want our will aligned to his. And so we bring our father into our conversations. That's what you do in a family. And that's what we do as we gather together here. So why do we gather together? We gather together because worship is important to God. We gather together because we worship as the family of God. How does, how does my view of gathering together change as I see the church as this family that God has died to create? Next, we gather together to worship God only. We gather together to worship God only. And to think about this, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17, and the backdrop of this is that this is Assyria has come in and it's taken over Israel. Israel, you'll remember when they came out of Egypt, they, they came into Canaan and they were, they were a united 12 tribes and under David and under Solomon and he ruled, they ruled over these 12 tribes and then Rehoboam came in, Jeroboam and the, and the tribes, they, they, they divided and there was the, the lower kingdom and the upper kingdom. It was Israel and Judah. And, and so Israel turned away from the Lord way before Judah did. And because they turned away from the Lord, the Lord gave them over to their enemies. And Assyria came in and threw them over. And what Assyria would do is they would, they would take the nations that they conquered and they would deport the people and they would bring a bunch of, um, of people in to live there who had different thoughts and different religions. And in so doing, he would break, they would break the power of that country or that nation that they took over. And that's what they did in Israel. And so in 2 Kings, it begins to talk about those people. At verse 33, they worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them, but the Lord who has brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and an outstretched arm is the one you must worship. 
To him you shall bow down and offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Ooh, is that, is that something, the way that ends? See, we come together to worship God only. We've got to work hard at this. Because just as the Assyrians brought all these different thought processes and all these different religions and everything else into Samaria, so in the country we live, where yes, the pilgrims came and they had this deep desire to have a country that was founded on biblical principles and to have freedoms to be able to worship. Just like that, we've had all sorts of other things that have come into our country. And it doesn't take long for us to learn how to worship and serve idols, does it? Now the word for worship here in most of these places is the word for fear. But verse 35, it says, when the, when the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship, do not fear any other gods or bow down, adore them, serve them, or sacrifice. So we've got the three words for fear there, or for worship there. We've got the fear, we've got the adore, and we've got the serve. So where are we on this? Do we worship God alone in our lives? And how does that play out? And boy, it's so hard, isn't it? Do you know that anything you give a priority to above God is an idol that you're worshiping and you're serving? And it can be great things. It can be your marriage. It can be your relationship with your kids. It can be your relationship with your grandkids. It can be your job. It can be your car. It can be your house. It can be, it can be your sports. It can be one of a, a bunch of things that in themselves are not bad, but listen, if they have a priority over God, then what's happening is you're adding worship of God to the worship of other things, and he will not share his glory. Will not. And when you come in and you add worship, you're not worshiping. So what does it take? Well, it takes gathering together. It takes coming together because as we come together, we're able to say, whoa, no, that's not important. That's not a priority. Why are you giving that a priority in your life? God is the one who has priority. When we carve a time out of our week to gather together and to come together, to be able to, to lift up God's name, to magnify him, to praise him, to give him preeminence in our lives, if we do that consciously together for an hour, hour and a half, four hours, five, whatever you ask me to do, as we do that, See, we begin to get the idea that helps pour over into the week. That becomes important. So what do these services need to look like for that to happen in our lives? Yeah, and, and in Acts chapter 2, we have those, 
the beautiful illustration of what happened in the early church when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and good. They gave to everyone as they had need, and every day they continued to meet together In the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Oh, God, bring that to us here now, please. They loved this. They lived for it. They loved the family gatherings, so much so that they did it every day. And they, they got together and, and, and it says they did this with joy, with glad and sincere hearts. They were together. They couldn't wait to get together. I remember when I first started dating Karen. And I couldn't wait to be together with her. It's still that way, okay? <laughs> do you remember those? Do you remember someone in your life who you just couldn't wait to be with. The idea here, again, because we're individualistic in our thought process, we, we, we equate it like that, but, but in Scripture, it's like we can't wait to get together. Can't wait to do this. And I love when I see in the, in the fellowship time afterwards, and, and you guys just can't wait to be together and talking to each other and encouraging each other. So what are some of the, the things that we do? First, reflecting on the Word of God, preaching is is so important as we look at what we do and why we come together. Second Timothy chapter four, verse two. And I remember reading this uh, on January 1st, 2013. It says in the, in the margin of my Bible as I, as I read this to Tori Lindlin as he took his last breath. And he lived this verse and he used to challenge me with it all the time. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. See, you come here together, we come together so that we can have the word preached to us, so that we can be corrected and rebuked. Listen, you're doing things that are wrong. So am I. We all are. And we need to be corrected. And... If we don't take to that correction, we need to be rebuked. And we need to do that in an encouraging way. And that's what this verse tells us. Encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Listen, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what happens with God's word, God's word renews our mind. God's word is the truth that can come and teach us all that we need to know to stand against the lies of Satan that that bombard themselves against our souls. And so we renew our mind through the preaching of the word as the word is brought to us and it corrects us and it rebukes us and it encourages us because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that leads us to turn from those things. So as you gather together, do you leave feeling as though you've been corrected and rebuked and encouraged? That's why we gather together. 
We gather together for that fellowship time, that, that touch on each other's lives, for the communion, for the breaking of bread as we do that once each month and come together and remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus that makes that relationship with him and with each other possible. To prayer, as we bring prayer into our services, so many times throughout the week I'll be somewhere and, and, and I'll ask someone if I can pray with them. And, and so many times when it's someone who's never had anybody pray with them, they're always amazed to think that God can really be engaged in a conversation. When you begin to pray for someone and, 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 and you meet someone whose name is Bill and you say, Bill, can I pray for you? And you say, God, I'm praying for Bill and I pray that you touch his life today and, and meet him right at his point. And, and you open your eyes and he's crying. He said, I didn't even know God knew my name. Amen. See, here we pray. And we pray here so we learn how to pray here so that we can go pray wherever we go. Because we can do no thing of power until we've done the prayer thing. You have nothing to offer people in the world except your prayers. Music, Colossians 3, 15 through 17. I love this passage. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As, as Paul's getting ready to wrap up this letter to the church in Colossae, and he's, he's talking about living like, like you got heaven in mind and living together as this family of God and these dearly and beloved people of God, holy and chosen. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace. See, being part of the family brings peace. We're, we're called to be one body, one family in peace. And then there's this incredible sentence, and if you have problems memorizing Scripture, here's one for you, and be thankful. It's a sentence, and be thankful. You can memorize that, and you can live that, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Oh, I wish, I wish I could hear Paul speaking this over this church in Philippi. Because I believe he's ready to burst out of his skin. Because he's saying to them, listen, I, I, let this peace of Christ rule in you. As you gather together, you're going to be so overwhelmed with the truth that God is who he says he is, that, that he has sent Jesus to rescue you from your separation from him, that he's rescued you from darkness and brought you into his marvelous light, and you've been given victory in God, and together you can be thankful for that. It can just radiate from you. When you stop and consider all the things in the world that are charging against you, you can come together and realize the fact that God is in control and God is sovereign and God, almighty God, has reached down and knows your name and knows the number of hairs on your head and is intimately involved in your life. And when you stop to consider that, you can't help yourself but to join in with all of creation that waits in eager expectation and rejoices in who God is. And that's why we sing. We sing to declare the majesty and the glory and the praises of an almighty God who has reached into our lives and rescued us and saved us and brought us peace. And no matter what happens, we have gratitude because we know, we know that heaven is secure for us. And so we burst with gratitude. 
and we bring our offerings. We bring our offerings. We realize that everything we have comes from the Lord. And, and when the whole world is telling you to put everything aside for yourself, we come together and say, God, it's all yours. And we recognize that in different ways as we come together. And we offer to him from all that he's given to us. And we give him sacrifices of praise. So how am I contributing to the worship of God as we gather together? What is the false worship that pulls me from true worship of God? Because listen, worship of God is not true worship unless it's selfless. Why? Why do you come to gather together? I trust that it's changed your view today. I trust that you realize that it's not just about coming to church for what you get out of it. It's not to fulfill an obligation. It's, it's not because it's something to do. No, no, no. We're here because worship is important to God. We're here because we're part of the family of God. We love to be together as a family. And we're coming to declare that we worship God only. So Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that by faith you've given us the power we need to live our lives for you. Lord, we're able to worship you because you've rescued us. And we know the truth of that, God. And so as we gather together, I pray that you'd have this to be a priority in our lives, maybe differently than it has been. And God, if there's anyone in the room today who is not yet a member of the family of God, would you draw them to yourself right now? If you have never met Jesus as your Savior, if you have never come to a point where you've realized that the darkness that you're trapped in is there because of your sin, you can, you can call on God and you can ask him to come in and change you. I urge you to do that. I urge you to turn your heart to God and ask him to adopt you into his family, to receive you, to accept you. God, we praise you. And we ask that you would bind us together for your glory. In Jesus' name.